Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. We've got a great guest today, but before we get to our guest, I want to introduce the host of our show, Ian Cron. Ian, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great because we just recorded a fantastic episode with this guest we have on today, Dave Hollis. Yes. Author of the, 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 the new book, Get Out of Your Own Way, A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment, a tremendous book. Um, Dave is married to the author Rachel Hollis. Yes. Um, and uh, we, we just have an amazing conversation about the lies that human beings, particularly men, tell themselves. Um, and we talked about how that feathers with what the Enneagram is about. And along the way, we were able to help Dave understand what his type or know what his type might be, because our job isn't to type him, but to just launch him on the journey of self-discovery. And I, I had a ball. This is a great episode. So everybody's got to be, you know, listening real careful to it. It is. It's a great episode for all the reasons that you mentioned. And I've said it many times uh, in the intros, another favorite podcast, another favorite yes. typology podcast. So, well, let's get to our guest. Dave Hollis, welcome to Typology. Thank you for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. So my uh, first observation that I want to make is that you have the most wild hairdo of anyone we've ever had on typology. <laughs> I don't know what number it is, but this has an Enneagram of its own, let's be clear. But also, this is the byproduct of quarantine. I've started taking care of my own personal grooming, and it shows. Honestly, it shows. Yeah, well, so... Uh, are, are you saying that you get, get bored and you just keep trying new hairstyles? And Yeah, this is one of those times where taking chances has taken on a whole new meaning. I've yeah. never one time in my entire life grown facial hair, and apparently I can. Uh, I always wear glasses. <laughs> I'm currently uh, wearing contacts, and uh, I don't traditionally sport what I believe the kids would call a hawk. But here I am, uh, having taught myself how to shave the sides and back of my head, but not the top. So, you know what? We just roll with it. In the Skinner house, we would say, you got your wig busted. This, <laughs> this also fits. Yes, this also fits. It's a good... <laughs> well, if you saw the back of my head, you, you would realize that I'm beginning to look like a professional sound man with a mullet. So... <laughs> It looks like I work at Guitar Center. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, man. So we're going to, at the beginning of this show, let's stay away from what your Enneagram type is. Uh, I'm going to let you tell that story a little bit. Uh, in fact, let's jump in there. Tell us a little bit about your Enneagram journey. Well, I uh, have skepticism in my blood. So I was honestly very skeptical of anything like an Enneagram, like love languages, like any kind of personality diagnostic for the majority of my life. I thought uh, in some ways it was hooey and witchcraft and others because of having been raised inside the church, there was some interesting taboo around what it might mean to lean on science. Oh my goodness, science. 
uh, instead of something more inside of faith. And so I just was not someone who was open to uh, having something that I, I honestly, I kind of equated it to horoscopes, which I know is demeaning to you, sirs. Uh, apologies in advance. It's, but no, I it's more like astrology. Let's be clear. More like, more like astrology, right? And, right? and so I, I just didn't. And then I found myself in this very strange transition from 30 to 40, where the big existential questions that normally come up on a birthday were lasting unbelievably longer than they normally do. And in them lasting longer, I went on a little bit of a hunt to understand why I do the things I do, why I felt the way I was feeling, why even though I had the trappings of a bunch of good things in my life and having built a career and a family, I had a sense of underfulfillment inside of me. And that led me first to sit on the couch of a therapist and then to start reading some books and then ultimately into having a conversation around something like an Enneagram just to understand how am I wired and how does my wiring pair well with my wives. I took my first Enneagram test right around that 40-year-old birthday, which happened to be me in the state of, uh, I think they call it midlife crisis. Is that a thing mm. that resonates? Anyway, I was in the midst of uh, really this strange journey from, uh, from where I was to where I am. And, uh, and so I, I tested that first time and uh, found myself to be a nine. A peacekeeper. Okay, I can continue going. I don't. I, I'll talk for the entire rest of this month if that's. But what you also. But, but then you also tested several more times and came out as two different numbers than another. That's right. Yep. So okay. Fast forward then. So uh, my 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 crisis leads to a whole bunch of self discovery, some leverage of realizing what not taking action might mean and a decision to make some very, very big moves in our life. And so we moved our family from where we were living in Los Angeles to Austin, Texas. I left a job that I'd been working inside of for many, many years at 17 years at Disney and you know five or six years before that in entertainment to start working with my wife together in a company that we now run in Austin, Texas. And about six months ago, as we were at the coming up on the turn of the year, projecting where we wanted to take all of this thing that we were now building together, that we'd been building for the last 18 months, we took Enneagram tests again. And she has always been an achiever, a three, three, two. And I uh, decided to take this test. And in this environment, I've taken this test and now I am a three. And as much as I can certainly associate with achieving an achievement as a thing that has been a part of the through line of my journey of life and uh, achievement in some ways how I attempted to get love from those I was craving it from as a child. Um, it made sense to me. I assumed that, oh, threes test is nines in crisis. Aha, it's all good. And then I meet you. What in the world? And so here we are. I'm now you know, six months removed from this experience of ramping into our year. And some very big things have obviously happened in the world. Uh, I had a book that came out, which was a big thing that I was six months ago, very excited about pushing and pursuing into becoming something big. I was uh, thinking about all of the things that we were going to scale it as a company. And I was going to be on a book tour that now has been preempted by this shutdown, this quarantine, this virus that we are all experiencing. And uh, in the midst of what now has been the last seven weeks, I have reoriented so many of the things that I thought I was going to be doing and where my focus has been drawn to what I want to do to unlock the passion of my life and explore my creativity. 
And so two days ago, in preparation for this very conversation, I take the test again, expecting, of course, that I'm going to come out the three that I know myself to be. And y'all's test says that I'm an eight, which makes me think that either I am a sociopath I have multiple personalities, or I'm literally a human chameleon, which I am open to any of those answers, but I'm uh, part of my excitement for being here today is for you to help me understand why the heck is this test broken, because it certainly can't be me. So here's the thing. In fact, yesterday, <clears throat> I was on the phone with a friend of mine who is a research psychologist at Abilene Christian, a guy named Richard Beck, and he is a brilliant uh, you know, researcher. So he doesn't have clients. All he does is research. And his whole same thing is psychometrics. It's, it's so that's test construction, uh, which, you know, people get PhDs in test construction. It's like, you know, when you put together the SATs or the LSATs, like that's intense work, man. Like it, it, I can't even begin to tell you the science behind test. We, we geeked out for two freaking hours, you know, about statistical analysis and negative affectivity inside of questions. And I, I just love that stuff. It's like the only math and science I love because everything else your, I like. Your is Saturday like, nights must get racy. Oh, I love this. <laughs> I don't want to tell you about the statistical analysis on the <laughs> sex slice of introverts versus extroverts. I, but the, That's but a I whole read other it. episode. Yeah, we can do it. Um, but the, the point I was going to make uh, is that um, all self-report assessments have margins of error. They, they can depend on stages of where, where you are personally in the moment that you take it. Uh, and uh, I always tell people, Myers-Briggs, whatever test it is, StrengthsFinder, Colby, Hogan, do not ever take those results face value. The test does not know you better than you know you. Yes. Okay. What you really need to do is meet with like a certified um, teacher to verify your results. Okay. And that's so it's, and the test should only be considered one data point among many. So you read a book, you go to a workshop, you take a test. It's not uh, the be all and end all. Great data point, but it, it's just one data point. I always worry that people take a test and think the test is smarter than they are. Yeah. Well, I will tell you this. One of the observations that my wife and I had in the second test revealing this three relative to the previous test showing a nine when I took that test and I got the nine the first time and I read everything that a nine does and I read how a nine interacts with a three and it felt like someone was reading my diary because I could see myself in the story that was being represented in the test results. It also in some ways created a frame inside of which I found myself believing I needed to continue to behave inside of because this diagnostic had told me who I was. And in some ways, if there were times when I started to veer away from something that may have been as a part of that diagnosis, a, a sign of who people who are like me are meant to act like, I found myself resisting. Oh, look, get back in your lane because you know you're a nine and nines act this way. And so the cautionary tale in any of it, as we were then, you know, sitting here six months ago with this three was, man, be careful how anytime you take any of these tests, you assume some kind of responsibility to live into the results in a way that might keep you from being who you are or how you feel in that moment, in that day. 
So you actually just perfectly, you actually just gave the best articulation of why I tell people it's not a good idea to try and identify your child who's a five, you know, like who's five years old. Yeah. Because they will try and live into in order to please the parent who has diagnosed them as that yeah. type, they will begin to uh, make accommodations and compromises in their presentation to the world in order to say, well, I'm a five. That's what my mom says. Now I got to start acting like one. And then yeah. what you're doing is creating a child with a false self. Instead of saying, eh, you know, be patient, you know, wait until they're a little, quite a bit older, 10 years, you know, 15, 16, 17, or when they express interest, you know, in knowing that's a, a better a better time. So maybe over the course of our conversation, we'll be able to figure some of this out uh, or not. And that's part of the journey. And I'm yeah. always transparent with people that uh, I am not the like you know the wizard of Enneagram. And uh, this is a this is my job as an Enneagram teacher is to help launch people on a journey of self discovery. You know, I'm not personally responsible for for typing someone ever. You know, my job is to say, to kind of point people in directions for more investigation. That's, that's kind of how I see my, my, role. I love it. I love so it. What, what did Rachel think your type was of, of those three? Well, here's the thing. When I told her two days ago, I got this result. I must have multiple personalities. What is actually happening? She said, I've always thought you were an eight. And the thing in her saying it, she said, look, what I didn't want to tell you is what I think you are so that you mm. might start behaving in a way that tries to feed into what you think I think you should be like. Right. But uh, she's been someone like, to, she is the counterbalance to my skeptic. She's been a believer in so many of the things that can help people grow and understand themselves better far you know, earlier than I was. And so she was into this and uh, had read more about it than I ever had before I ended up, you know, kind of like leaning into it. And by the way, like as a thing that we now have for the 60 employees inside of our company, many of them have their Enneagram number and their love language on a little laminated card. That's actually, I mean, one day we'll get back to offices, but in our office at their desks, just so that people know, oh, this is kind of who I am and how I maybe need you to come and meet me so that we can, you know, have a handshake that shakes well. So have you had a dear friend that knows the Enneagram uh, give you any input about what they think your type is? The, what's interesting is when I have told people anything about all of what we've just talked about, they will see the characteristics of what I have told them in real time in me in a way that affirms what I have told them. So it's rare to have somebody come and say, wow, I really thought you were this. They're like, yep, I can see you being a three. You've always been an achiever or Yep, you always have been a peacekeeper. Nine is who you are. I haven't told anyone this eight thing because I don't want to be affirmed two days in. But right. there's, I think there's something interesting either in the way that I just have some interpersonal relationships with people who want to confirm what they, what, what I've said. They want to confirm yeah. or but in mirroring a little bit back of yeah. what I've told them. But right. I've never really had someone push back and say, no way, you're not a three. You're definitely a this. Yeah, that's because they don't want to be fired. Also true, right? <laughs> most of my friends are paid. And so I, they're, they're on the Wait a minute, most of my friends are paid. Did you just see <laughs> That is fantastic. So, all right, let's, let's jump. We'll, we'll figure this out possibly as we go along here, but I'm really fascinated by 
the title and the topic of your book, uh, Get Out of Your Own Way, A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment. And the reason I am is uh, because I think it relates to how we use the Enneagram as a tool for personal transformation. There is a lot of parallel um, like I can see these, like like the Enneagram in your book feathering really well together uh, in helping people live into the truth versus continuing to live in a false narrative. Okay, so let's start off by by just asking you very common, you know, what what what's the book about, and uh, what put the lump in your throat or made the hair on the back of your neck stand up that, and which told you I got to write it. So the book is a collection of 20 lies that I believed in my life that kept me because of those beliefs from becoming or being my best self. And in going through the work to shine light of truth on those lies and make them unbelievable, I was able to get out of my own way. I did not fancy myself a writer. There was not a time when I was like, I can't wait to write this book until my wife, who happens to also be an author and has built a community of people online to pour some encouragement and inspiration into their lives, wrote what for her was, I think, her fifth or sixth book called Grow Wash Your Face. I, uh, in reading the book, which also happens to be framed in a very similar way, 20 lies that she was believing that were getting in her way, I did my very best to convince her to not release the book. I just, I thought it was uh, a, a liability to be as open and honest about the way that she'd struggled. And even if it could help people, I thought it was bad for us because we'd been managing the optics of everything being great. And here she was going to ruin all of it. And she didn't listen to me. Thank goodness. It sold a bunch of copies. And in people reading it, I was able to see firsthand how they were responding to seeing themselves in her stories. And the power of the, oh, wow, it's normal to struggle through these things. And the tips that she would offer to help people who also identified with those stories right. to help them get out of their own way. I was like, man, this is great. There is something in this. I have absolutely struggled, come out of that weird thing between 30 and 40, and now I've become a better version of myself. What if I were to do this, but tell these stories through the lens of someone who's not motivated like her. She's super intrinsically motivated to my external. She's got a growth mindset to my fixed. And I've been skeptical to her being a believer. And here we are. Can I ask you a question? Because that, that phrase, best self, best version of yourself, gets batted around a lot, right? Like, and I think people think intuitively they know what it means uh, in their gut. But if you ask them, what does best version of yourself mean or look like? Like, how would you know? Like, do you, so, have you ever, like, well, how do you I've thought, So I've thought about it. So it, at the beginning of the year, I made this wild declaration that 2020 was going to be the best year of my entire life. I had saved it for 45th year on planet. Here we go. And uh, I went away for two and a half days to Tucson. I sat on a rock and I thought about what I would need to do to engineer the greatest year of my life. And the place that I started, bizarrely of all places, was looking backwards at where I had experienced pain in the previous three to five years of my life to see if there were any consistent ingredients. And if those ingredients maybe revealed themselves in my 2020, I could preempt them and keep them from happening. And the pain that existed every single time was an absence of congruence, incongruence between 
who I was telling people I was or who I knew I could be and who, when I was by myself, I knew I'd showed up as. And the dissonance, that space between who I knew I could be and who I am is shame, is regret, is underfulfilled potential, is feeling like I could have done better but didn't. And I now, when I think of my best self, my best self is someone who is as closed gap between who I know I can be, what my personal values suggest I ought to be, and how I feel about myself when I'm by myself because of knowing that I've created something that is consistent with the vision of what I can be, what God's put me on this planet to be. Yeah, that's a, a really great insight. And I'm really glad I asked that question because I think a lot of people go right past the phrase, best version of yourself, without ever stopping to, to ask themselves, what the heck does that even mean? Mm. And so um, usually what the, it means in their mind is my, uh, my, uh, a more productive, efficient, uh, successful, uh, blah, 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 rather than saying to themselves, I will know that I am my best self when who I present myself to others and who I know I am in private align. Yeah. And yeah. I think the word you use was congruence, right? And, congruence, yeah. And, and so, which is like the Latin word integritas, from which we get the word integrity, which just means wholeness. Yeah. And by the way, now, like for me, what that meant, like the exercise that came from it was – it, my practical wiring created a math equation that's very simple and it's part of school everywhere. It was an if-then equation. If I want to be an exceptional husband to my wife, then my calendar needs to reflect that with a standing date night. Then I need to put technology down and create intimacy in our conversation. Then I need to do things without having to be asked. If I want to be close to my kids, then, right? And I can do that for every part of my life and the then statements become a list of habits. They become a list of routines. And now I'm building a routine that hopefully engineers the greatest possibility in an imbalanced world right. of me being able to create that, that, that overlap. So what you're actually describing is a kind of spiritual technology. I like right? this. Yeah. Right? And a, a tool, a spiritual tool, one among many, for um, – well – Thomas Merton said it better than anybody, right? To be a saint is to become myself, right? And so what you're describing is a spiritual technology that can help someone on the journey toward becoming the truest expression, uh, the clearest expression of who they genuinely are. Does that sound like what we're talking about? Or I am here for it. That is a great way of saying it. It's a, I, I totally agree. Okay, so this is a show about the Enneagram, and I want people who are listening to know that as we talk, I'm thinking Enneagram. Number two, um, that what we're talking about uh, is very tied into the Enneagram, and they're going to know by the end of the show exactly why. So I want them to hang in there, and, but we're, what we're talking about is fantastic because you know, my fixation in life is personal growth, and how do I accompany others? on the journey of, of spiritual and personal uh, development, you know, as, as human beings. Okay, so mm. what are, you, you gave 20, but I want to ask you, what are the, what's the top 10, you know, like almost like a, on the billboard charts, you know, what, what's the top, top, top 10 most common lies that men typically tell themselves and others? 
Okay, so what's the top 10 most common lies that men typically tell themselves and others? Just give me a bunch. You don't have to be well, like, you know. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this. I, I'm going to answer the question, but I'm going to start with this. Because the first thing that you have to appreciate is the storytelling that exists in your life. Because mm -hmm. if you don't start by just appreciating that we are running our lives through the matrix that has been ex uh, created of stories that we have just accepted as truth, but maybe have not tested the hypothesis of our truth against those stories, that's where you have to start. And so like the, the work of the book and even answering this question, it's gonna be a little bit different for everybody because everyone has a different story that currently is acting as a limiting belief or a, or a lie that stops them from showing up as well as they might. I'll, I'll give a very simple one, the, the idea that what is available or can happen for other people can't happen for me is something that many of us, whether it's being able to thrive inside of a quarantine or get the job that I want or achieve something uh, outside of my current competency set, I was told a story about how I as a tall person could not run. Tall people can't be runners. And that story was a story that I just accepted as a capital T truth in my life from the beginning of time because it came from a credible source. And when you are thinking about the stories that you believe, no matter what story you believe, usually you're believing it comes in part because of the credibility of who was telling it originally. And the thing that I would offer to anyone who's listening that you have to ask is, does that source still in 2020 have credibility in your life? And two, if they have credibility in your life, do they have credibility on the topic that we are talking about? The storyteller for my not being a tall runner was my mother. She's a great woman. I love my mother. She is a credible source. So she, yes, still has credibility in 2020, but my mother is neither tall nor a runner. And so while she told me a story, right, through the lens of, like, truly, through the lens of her fear wrapped in love, I want to take care of you. I'm worried about you. But it was her fear that was telling the story. It wasn't her love. I didn't until 36 test the hypothesis of my truth and not her fear. And once I did, I became a runner. I've run a thousand miles in the last 12 months. I, I run all the time. I'm a tall runner. And so take that analogy and put literally anything in your life listener into that and ask, does my belief in my not being able to do this thing come back to mm -hmm. someone who I have afforded credibility that today they do not still you know get that kind of uh, the benefit of the doubt they don't have credibility today um, start with the storytelling that's the first and most important thing um, a lot of the things that one of the chapters is the lie uh, everyone is thinking about me right a lot of the things that we as men or women it does this is not well, exclusive to men at all so, yeah <laughs> uh, it, it, but there's this there's this conceit there's this uh, belief that is fueled by our ego and our identity that everyone is thinking about what we are doing. And here's a gift. No one is thinking about what you're doing. Not anyone who's on this podcast today, no one in your circle, they are all thinking about themselves first, just like you, listener, are thinking first about yourself too. And that doesn't indict you as being a bad person. It doesn't indict the people around you as being bad people. It indicts them as being human because it is the human condition to think of ourselves first. And the sooner you can appreciate that other people aren't thinking about you, you're free. You have the freedom now to go fail as often as you possibly can so that you can grow in that failure. You have the freedom to express yourself creatively because who cares if people like or don't the thing that you've made. I, in the chapter, I tell the story of my hatred 
of Lord of the Rings. Send your notes wherever you'd like. I'm, I'm happy to not open them. I don't like the Lord of the Rings. And here's the thing. Lord of the Rings being a thing that I don't like does not make it not likable. It is loved. It is beloved. And how do I know that? It's done billions of dollars in box office. There are millions of fans around the world that love it. But me not liking it doesn't change any of that. And someone not liking the thing that you create doesn't change it at all. I also don't like The Hobbit. If you want to send two letters, go ahead and put them together. It'll save some, save some <laughs> All right, so there's there's one sort of unchallenged assumption that people operate with, right? Um, that people are thinking about me all the time, right? Um, but you you got twenty that you talk about. Give me right. So I'm not going to let you off the hook on the question. Yeah. All right, give me uh, just. I just want to know three. Let's say. So without my, without even much explanation behind them. My my job is who I am. That your identity is who you are that I know what she needs, that I, uh, in a partnership with my wife, know what she needs, uh, that I have to parent the way that my parents did, uh, that I know what you've been through as a person who has the kind of privilege that I might, as a male, as a, a Caucasian, as a person who lives in America, I know what you've been through. Uh, uh, if she doesn't need me, she won't want me some of the very twisted transactional things that we can do in relationships where if we aren't providing, uh, will they need us in the absence of that provision? Uh, that in, in, in one chapter that is specifically geared towards men, maybe the only one that's specifically geared towards men, that uh, men don't have to feel, that, that uh, real men don't have emotions which is of course ridiculous. Of course, all of us have emotions. Uh, and the, the, the book starts with the idea that self-help is for broken people. Uh, a thing that kept me in my skepticism from reaching for the tools that would have helped me get out of my way long before I got in my way if I didn't have this backwards thing, thought around uh, needing help or needing tools is somehow indicting me as not being whole, good, or enough to start with. Okay, so then if can tell me the lie that you personally uh, are most prone to tell yourself or have historically, as you look over the arc of your life, told yourself over and over again, and it has had the most negative effect on you? Well, I started with the, the, I started the book with, and I will start most conversations with this concept of self-help being for broken people because... It's so connected to one of the insights that change the way that I will live the rest of my life. And that is the connection between growth and fulfillment, right? Like I was in this funk that I emerged from because at the time I was unfulfilled, even though all of the things that I and my wanting to achieve things, probably for the affection of people like my mother, uh, if I can just achieve enough, then I will be happy. And here I achieved a whole host of things that were on my list. And though I had the things that from the outside looked great, I didn't feel as I thought I ought to on the inside. And in the work of uh, finally pushing past my taboo and stigma around self-help, I was able to get the insight that if I'm not pushed out beyond my comfort zone, if I'm not in a position where I can fail, not that I like to fail, but so that when I do fail, I might learn from it and grow. Um, if I'm not in those situations, I will not feel fulfilled. And I'm interested in fulfillment. So 
so that that to me, like unlocking that or getting past that will fundamentally change the way that the rest of my life is lived because um, so many other, of the other things are possible because of appreciating the price of entry for my full life. I have to continue to push away from the harbor where I feel safest out to the choppy waves where growth will create fulfillment that I need. Okay, so in your life, prior to whatever watershed moment we call this, we call it midlife crisis. You know, I think, uh, and there's a book in this that maybe I should write and not give away on my show, but uh, the first one would be, I just think there are different questions that people ask in different decades. You, you know what I mean? Like, the, oh, yeah. in the, like in your 20s, I think your question is, can I, um, can I crush it? Can I really, you know, I think that maybe early 20s, it's who am I? Uh, you know, in, let me put it this way. In teens, I think it's who am I? Uh, where do I belong? And am I really loved? You got to answer those three questions. And, and, and if you miss one of those questions, it's going to affect the next 10 years in ways that are profound. Yeah. And if, so let's say you answer those three questions. Then in your 20s, you start to ask, okay, based on the gifts I've been given, am I adequate? Can I go out there and kill it? Can I go and prove myself, uh, et cetera? In your 30s, I think people tend to ask the question, is this all? At some point, you know what I mean? And okay, so at, you know, in your journey, you come to this watershed moment, this wall, if you would maybe call it, prior to hitting that wall, what, uh, what role did achievement play in your life? Like how, how big a role, like, like how much was success important to you? Very, very important. Very important for two reasons. I, I can acknowledge that I, in identifying through some therapy conversation and some insight at, at personal development conferences that there was something in my ability to make the honor roll and memorize the Bible verses and get the soccer trophies that uh, gamed the system in my favor for the affection that I was hoping for from my parents among me as the you know, one of four children in our home. If I can keep on achieving, then I'm going to keep on getting the attaboy. And the attaboy is this affirmation, confirmation of my uh, worthiness and my uh, lovability. And so the like things that had me valedictorian at high school and uh, an all-star in soccer, and you know that was just transitioned into me as a young adult where I got jobs right out of college that had me inside of entertainment for 25 years, growing and growing and growing and growing. And every time I got promoted or every time I had a different salary threshold or every time the new job introduced some additional bonus prize, like, hey, now you're a part of the academy or you get to go to these events, those things, the trappings, you know, were helping again, reinforce for anybody the well, I mean, I don't know about him. He's tall and goofy, but he does have this job. I guess he's likable. I guess he's worthy. He's lovable, right? So I can appreciate that. Also, there was something in certainty as a commodity in my life. There's the, like this practical, pragmatic undercurrent in uh, kind of everything and anything I do. It's my superpower and, of course, can also be a weakness. And so certainty in some respects... Were, was connected to my ability to provide for my family, 
been married to my wife for almost 16 years. I had, uh, until two years ago, been the primary breadwinner for our family. And we have four kids. We've had four foster kids. We've got a dog. That doesn't matter. But I, I, providing for all of this humanity that's assembled here now in Austin, Texas, is a thing that always was driving me because of the certainty that I was able to do those things um, felt like the thing I needed to chase. And certainty as that commodity was the gift until it turned into the curse. Because when I got to that big threshold 40th birthday party, my question, bizarrely, the one of the bigger kind of watershed moments, backyard, in the hot tub, three sons at the time, nine, seven, and four. And we have this standing game, ask dad anything. And my middle son asks, what are you afraid of? And he's looking for like spiders or tarantulas, boogeymen, whatever, because he's seven and out of my mouth falls, not living up to my potential. And in that coming out, in the midst of this crisis, as I'm not showing up as well as I'd like, feel unfulfilled because, man, I'm not having to work as hard as it turns out to get straight A grades on the test because of how unbelievable the environment I'm working inside of at Disney has come together. It challenges me to think differently about certainty because this commodity that had always been my driving force is now boomeranging against me and my clinging to certainty is coming at the expense of me living and showing up the way that I'd hope. Wow. Actually, your son asked you a question that's on my list of questions. Oh, really? That's yeah. good. He's a, he's a prophet at seven. I mean, he's way beyond his years. Yeah. Anthony, let me ask you a question. Like what specific lie Give me, it doesn't have to be your number one, but whatever. What, for you personally, what lie are you most prone to tell yourself? What unchallenged assumption in your story has been running thematically through your life that has been self-limiting and self-defeating? Yeah, I think Dave just hit on it because you, you actually said this. And I think, I, I believe as men, our prime, the primary lie that we uh, are up against is I'm not smart enough I'm not successful enough. Uh, I'm not handsome enough, whatever it might be. Uh, you, you said a minute ago, Dave, I'm, I'm afraid I wouldn't live up to my potential. I think that's really one of the bigger overarching fears for men and the way that the, my portal to that, which is, is, uh, is one of my big fears, uh, is that there's something missing or defective in me. That, that, that's kind of like the four portal to that, to that kind of overarching lie. There's something missing. I'm, I'm not enough. I haven't done enough. I'm not doing enough. I think that's probably the, you know, the big one for me. Yeah. And of course, that's such a, the, the culture reinforced, this culture that is obsessed with productivity mm -hmm. uh, to the point of psychosis uh, only sort of acts as jet fuel for a lot of what you're saying, right? Like, you know, uh, shame. I, I just, I can't get enough done. Uh, and, it sounds to me, let me just tell you what mine is. I, I, I think the lie that I most often, from the time I was a child, well, in, began in childhood with a, a father who was a, a chronic alcoholic, died of alcoholism when I was very young. Um, my becoming an addict in my 20s, uh, uh, thankfully now in recovery. Uh, I think that the message that I heard growing up that was so powerful was that I am what I survived. And so in other words, physical abuse, emotional abuse, all of these things, 
I identified as the logical outcome of my value as a human being. Like my Mm. value is determined by what I survived. And that colored everything. It took me a long time to realize, no, no, you you can't identify who you are with what you experienced. Those are two very, very separate things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it was a very painful period before I was able to kind of, you know, this was lather, rinse, repeat for a long time, you know. It's, in, it's really interesting because I, uh, I had this career where in entertainment, I grew a year over year, different job, new title, and the things that in that environment fed some of what I thought I needed in the absence of some of them happening on a frequency that they had previously, it actually starts working the opposite way. And you start questioning, wait, I'm not getting as often promoted. I'm not making it to the next level fast. I'm not, you know, and, and then you start questioning if it's something you've done or if, you, if you've made mistakes. And, and, and now that I've transitioned out of that business, I am, you know, confronted by completely different things and have had to hold, oh, no, no, no. It was never about your title being the thing that gave you worthiness or affirmed you as being good. It was you just inherently actually being it, but then also um, it doesn't absolve you just because you are already good and worthy. It doesn't mean that you also don't have to put in the work and continue to grow. I mean, I I, I have to hold that you can, yes, be good and whole as you are, but that also you got to get up and have a routine that unlocks trying to create that overlap between who you know yourself to be and who you could be. Yeah. So it sounds to me like an unchallenged and I don't want to, this is very important. I don't want to impose this on you. um, And, you know, have it a moment where this, so this form of confirmation bias sets in that you've experienced from other people and telling you your numbers and stuff. So feel free to, you know, obviously to push back. But, but it sounds to me like one of the perceived or real messages that you got as a kid growing up that got was sticky, right? Stayed with you long after its usefulness in adulthood, right? Um, was that the world really only values people for what they accomplished versus for who they are inside. That's good. Does that, does that sound right or... Yeah, well, it's, what's interesting is I've now been able to uncouple what I was taking from what the world was teaching and the fact that it was not actually teaching me that, right? This is just my perception of what was being taught because when I look yes. back now on my mother actually mm-hmm. caring about whether or not I got all A's or whether or not I made a club or whether or not, like, no. I, I mean, it's so ridiculous now, but... I didn't have the objectivity to see it then. So that was my reality. And in that being my reality, I carried that reality with me as I, into adulthood. And now as I'm trying to parse through, okay, what of what I experienced was real and what of what I experienced was some conjured thing that was actually yes. maybe more a byproduct of somebody in second grade who refused to sign my yeah. yearbook. I, like who knows what it was, but yeah. right? Yeah. It's a confluence of forces. You know, we oftentimes blame and shame parents for, and sometimes like in my dad's instance, you know, I I can do some very easy finger pointing to some things he said, did, 
that 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 left a profound bruise on my soul that has taken a long time to heal and is continuing to heal it has faded from black to gray in my life you know but you know you, you learn to live with your bruises you know yeah. in ways that are hopefully positive but we pick up messages not just from our parents it's from our culture it's from coaches it's you know every time your coach says great shot you know and your value you, you, you know what i'm saying like it, it's almost like there's a conspiracy in the universe that continues to confirm the underlying assumption that isn't true right yeah, like but right. but yeah. everybody is like in on it <laughs> yeah, oh by the way i can see like i can see the little threads that come together in the ta tapestry of how i was influenced my faith as a child uh, though i have a completely different uh, uh, feeling generally on how faith is not if you check these things on this box then you're good when i was 5 i was checking things on a box because my 5 year old brain couldn't possibly contemplate the breadth of what my faith ends up being today. And so it was very simply, you better make sure you say your prayers. You better make sure you memorize your verses. And in some ways, the checklisting version of my faith was bleeding into the accomplishing things to get affirmed as being enough thing that was happening in my house with my friends, you know, in, in, all, in all the spaces. I, I love the idea of a confluence though, because it is all the things, not just a single thing. No, exactly. So, you just you just used a word that I'm gonna I want to circle back to, but I want to maybe even throw out a phrase to you. I think, and and I want to be careful about this because the topic of trauma gets in, and then it, it sort of complicates things. But you know, I think there's what happened to you in childhood, and what you think happened to you in childhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's a really important idea, right? It's like there's what actually happened and what you think actually happened. And I think as you get older, you, you have to begin to delineate b between the two. Uh, because if you don't, you're going to, you're going to keep carrying uh, a big old backpack full of rocks, you know, in the job in life, I think as you get older is how can I get, uh, how can I lighten the load? Let me, how, what rocks can I get out of the backpack? You know, and so that I can move through life more easily and uh, without, you know, being slowed by being um, uh, burdened. That's the best word I can use, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, you I, just gave, said, I gave my book to my mom. Uh, sorry, yeah. real quick side story. But yeah, but please, great. Right. So I gave my book to my mom to read for the first time just before it had come out. She read it very quickly and almost immediately she was like, some of your stories, they just didn't happen this way. I'm like, okay, now number one, I appreciate so much one, that you read the book. Thank you for reading the book. It means a lot. But also, I am sharing my experience that I had, and you were witness to me living through these things that I'm recounting in this book, but you couldn't possibly know how I had that experience. But it does beg, it's a very, like, I bring it up more because it ended up provoking a little bit of a conversation in some instances of did the way that I've remembered some of these experiences give full credit to what was actually happening? Or is this some uh, manifestation of the emotional state that I was in or the way that I carried it for a longer period of time that afforded mm -hmm. more weight to it than maybe the weight that, you know, anyone else would have necessarily, it doesn't make my, the way I experienced it wrong. 
and whatever, whoever you are, listener, if you've experienced something, you carry a lot of weight for it. I want to honor that. But it took someone else reading the stories of me representing weight for me to even question if some of the weight that I'd assigned was real weight, was really the amount of weight that was necessarily uh, the right amount. I'm not sure that there is a right amount answer, by the way, but it was interesting, if nothing else. Well, you know how it is, you know, little, you know, human beings are meaning makers. It, mm-hmm. It's they're intractable meaning makers. So it, 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 they have to be. It's a survival mechanism. If you didn't know how to make meaning out of experience, your whole life would actually disintegrate and you yeah. re- resulting in terrible pathology, really. And so little children assign meaning to experiences, to what people say to them, things that they endure. Uh, the problem is, is they're crappy interpreters. Mm. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's you know good. what I'm saying? Yeah. So, you know, you got to go back and, and to reauthor some of that material or, or you're going to, you know, you're going to run into a whole host of, uh, of problems. Okay. So Enneagram people, listen up. We're, uh, whether you know it or not, we are moving toward some clarity here about uh, Dave's type. I want to go back to a word you used before, uh, checklisting. Are you, a, are, you a, are you a list person? I can, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not as much of a list person now, but I was one in, when I was younger, I was very like meticulous about wanting to make sure that I was turning in every assignment that I was getting. Like, so younger version of me. Yes. Dave version. Now I like barely check voicemails. I'm terrible at email. I am not I, as much as I make a list in the morning of 10, I make a list of 10 statements for the future version of myself in present tense as though they've already happened to kind of trick my brain into believing that they already exist. But um, I make a small to-do list in the, in, in the morning, but not a, it's like three things that I need to accomplish for the day. Okay. So I could have this cut. We could be going on for hours, but since we're not actually able to have this show be an opera, I'm going to keep moving us on here. Um, so, um, how do you identify, let me ask you, <clears throat> because I think your book covers this. Um, how do you neutralize the lies that hold us back from becoming the best version of ourselves? Well, a lot of times it took me tracing back who authored the story and questioning if that story still carries water and if the intention of the storyteller, though it may have been good, actually brings out the best version of me. And so, uh, you know, it was a lot of time, again, sitting in therapy or reading in books um, you know, just changing a lot of uh, many of the things that I represent in my book happen to be connected to a fixed mindset that historically I've had. And so reading Carol Dweck's book, spending time understanding like why my brain was processing things or thinking about things like failure in a certain way or criticism in a certain way was important so that I could now come back to the impulse to play it safe or the impulse or worry of what other people might be thinking and realize, you know, that they weren't. A lot of it too was just toe dipping into spaces to test whether the things I believed were actually true. And mm-hmm. so um, some of the observation ends up being, all right, self-help is for broken people. Well, then I got into self-help and I realized how helpful it is for people who are experiencing, yes, a season of brokenness, but also for whole and happy humans that just want to have a better life perpetually till the end of time. When I was worried about, you know, my, when I had the, the belief that I understood what other people were going through, it took me sitting in rooms with people who had had a wholly and totally different life experience for me to 
realize not only do I not know what you've been through, I'll never fully totally appreciate what it's like to live a life that is different than the one that I'm living. I can just hope to sit closer to and, and maybe understand better over time by being more actively intentionally in community. So every time it was just like, I'm going to press closer to either finding the source, press into testing the hypothesis or change a little bit of the way that I've thought to see if I can almost like immunotherapy in small doses, try something until I build up some kind of a resistance to the thing I had as a previous belief. And then all of a sudden you've reframed your beliefs. You know, one of the ways that has really helped me and Anthony, I'll ask you the same thing in a second to challenge or interrogate. That's a better word to interrogate the assumptions that that exist beneath the waterline of my consciousness. I mean, what you're describing is, is that you went through a period when you took, when you began to surface material that lived underneath the waterline of consciousness, you brought it above the waterline of consciousness and so that it could come into the light, right? But, but, but for as long as it was living underneath the waterline of consciousness, it was autonomously running your life without 100%. you knowing it. So for me, um, the most valuable spiritual psychological practice that I've had has been a regular practice of mindfulness meditation. The reason is that when I can quiet the mind and uh, strengthen my ability, what we call the inner neutral witness in your brain, I can actually now see when false stories launch. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like 100%. I all of a sudden go, oh, I am now beginning to live in this moment as though the most important thing in life is to be loved by everybody. Or, oh, wait a minute, this other story, this other lie has launched. Or this, but without that practice, my I'm on autopilot. You know what I mean? I'm just you know, but the practice has taught me to slow down and it creates a pause where I can begin to see the movie take off, you know, in my head. Anxiety is one of those things that everyone inevitably has to deal with at one time or the other and, or, or another and uh, tracing back when you felt the first pangs of anxiety to understand what it is that you're actually being triggered by has been a very, very helpful thing. What's interesting, one of the chapters in the book, a drink will make this better, a drink will make this better, was a thing I believed after a long day where I might get anxious because of, man, there's a lot of work or I'm going to deal with this thing or whatever, I would have a drink. I had this casual relationship with alcohol for 20 years of my life where I'd have a long day, a couple drinks, longer day, maybe three drinks. And then we start doing this work together. I'm writing this book. All of these things are stacking on top of each other and chaos tips my casual relationship into a non-casual relationship. And instead of processing with a mindfulness exercise, this anxiety, I am now having a drink to mute the anxiety, right? I've been triggered by the anxiety. The routine is I'm going to have a drink and my reward Mm -hmm. is and I don't have to deal with it, but it hasn't gone away, right? And so I had to make this declaration. I'm going to stop drinking. I stopped drinking uh, more than a year ago. And I make this declaration because I needed to find a healthier coping mechanism to mindfully process the anxiety when it came up. For me, 
I love the idea of meditation. I've just not myself gotten into it like you have. I started running and long distance mm. running for me became this cathartic, ther therapeutic, almost religious experience of creating space for my mind to process my anxiety in a way that still got me my reward. I, had, I now have right. less anxiety, but in a healthy way that actually was reducing it instead of muting it because as I would come to discover, alcohol or any coping mechanism is not a local anesthetic. You can't just take care of the anxiety without also destroying joy or destroying the benefit that might come from the growth that the anxiety may in fact be there to produce. Um, you destroy all of it. So I love that. I also, uh, as a person who never ever believed in journaling, I thought people who journaled had to be hippies. I just didn't know. You can, in fact, even if you don't have long hair, you can journal. Oh, hold, on, hold on a second, bro. <laughs> don't get into the hair thing, because right now you have no credibility. This is fair. I'm cutting my own hair. I am cutting my own hair. But uh, there's, there's something magical when it comes to surfacing the things that sit below your consciousness. Yes. That yes. at 25 to 35 minutes into freeform writing on a piece of notebook paper, 20 minutes in, you'll have extinguished all of your conscious thoughts. And I am shocked at what comes in to 26, 27 minutes in, out of nowhere. Here comes something that I didn't even appreciate was sitting inside of my subconscious. And now that I've surfaced it, I get a chance to address it, ask questions, interrogate. I love the word interrogate. It's such a good, it's such a good word. That same thing happens for me on like the sixth mile of a run. So I want to recommend a book. It's not a... Uh you know, if you, you self-identify as a Christian, I tend to go wherever really good truths can be found. And then I yep. bring my Christian worldview to it and throw out what doesn't align with it. But there's actually a book called, and this is why I was looking over here typing. I wasn't checking text. I wanted to make sure I got the, the title right. It's called Running with the Mind of Meditation. Mm. Uh, because there's actually a long history of what we call walking meditation. And there's uh, a well-known Buddhist monk who actually is a a marathon runner. He wrote a book called Running with the Mind of Meditation, uh, which you may find, uh, you know, really, uh, really helpful at some at some point. Now, we got to we got to we got to wrap up here. But even though I don't want to, because there's so much that I'm enjoying about this conversation. But here's where can I jump in with a because you asked you said you're going to ask me a question. Oh, I'm sorry, go. Anthony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's go. OK. Yeah. I just wanted to highlight uh, because I made the comment earlier. I love what both of you uh the theme is like narration. And as I'm listening, part of one of my, one of my thoughts was like some of, if we don't um, deal with the narration, it's kind of like, you know, going through our story, through our book and like shaving off a sentence here or two, or, or trying to adjust a chapter, but it really doesn't affect the outcome. If you can't get to the, the bigger theme, the, the narration that colors the whole book. And um, I was just having a conversation, uh, with someone the other day we're talking about music because I kind of cut my teeth as a musician and songwriter performer. And whenever I'm mentoring anyone, I always tell them like the space is as important as the notes. And uh, I think a lot of times we do a lot of thinking, a lot of talking, uh, a lot of processing, but making space for silence and space for listening um, has been, you know, an answer to your question, Ian, one of the more transformative um, practices for me is beginning my day with meditation and with, as a person of faith, listening to the voice of love from my creator that then 
really redefines kind of even when I just, it's my first question of the day, what are you thinking, feeling, doing, listening to love and allowing that to define me? That helps me break out of the unhealth of there's something missing or defective in me. When I know from the beginning, even if there's something broken, that it's loved, then it allows me to live from love that day instead of for love. And it seems to answer all those Say that questions. again. So, no, 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 no. Stop. Yeah. Say what you just said again. To live from I, love instead of for love. That's Boom. good. That's, that's good. Really good. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a really great statement. I hope yeah. everyone just heard that loud and clear. Uh, that's yeah. something that everyone should think about today. Keep going. It's so that's that is kind of my daily mantra. Uh, from blessing, not for blessing. From love, not for love. And the the thing that it helps to adjust and shape is even as. And I'm kind of hearing you, Dave. I am personally kind of hearing you as a three. It sounds a little bit like a three when you're talking, but uh, it it affects not only where you're coming from, but why you would want to do what you do. If you're motivated yeah. from love, you're going to want to excel and and get the maximum amount out of your day, you know, toward other people. Uh, you know, so it doesn't mean you're going to all of a sudden be lazy. Well, I'm it's like, I'm okay. So I don't have to perform, you know, uh, it actually, I think, uh, it, it, uh, raises your level of desire to be as, uh, creative and to flourish as a human being as, you know, as much as you possibly can in that given yeah. moment or day. So, so St. Augustine is a huge, uh, well, he's one of my heroes of many, but he has this, he, he really struggled. He was an Enneagram three for sure. I think. And he, um, but he has this great line where he says, for your glory, may I be loved. Mm -hmm. So what he's saying there isn't, um, you know, I don't want to be loved. He's just saying, may the source of how I, let it be for your sake that I am loved. Yeah. Does that make that's sense? Yeah. And that's a little bit what you triggered in me, Anthony, was reminding mm -hmm. me of that Augustine quote. And I dare say you said it more clearly than Augustine, and you should hold on to that today as a real compliment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you. so I want to just uh, zero in, finish up, um, and uh, I want to do two things. Uh, I want to close up with telling you nine lies that I think people tell. I want you to listen carefully and tell me which of these nine lives you, you lies you most identify with. Now you you will identify with a piece of every single one of them. Okay. But which of the nine sounds most like you? Okay. Okay. All of them are all of them you're gonna say I I kind of, but which one sounds most like you? Number one, to to be loved and good. I must perfect myself, others, and the world, and never make mistakes. I know lots of people who tell those, get up in the morning, and they think that's what I got to do. Second one, to be loved and appreciated, I have to help and meet the needs of others while denying my own, okay? The third one, the third lie would be, people only value others for what they do, not for who they are inside. And I must avoid failure at all costs. Okay. The, the fourth one was, would be to be loved, seen, and uh, not abandoned. I must be special and unique. The fifth one would be 
to feel safe in the world, I must uh, accrue as much knowledge and information as possible to fend off feelings of ineptitude. I hope you can remember all these as we go. I'm yeah, yeah. Okay, to be safe in the world, I must think about and plan for the worst and look to outside authorities to help me make decisions because I don't fundamentally trust my own ability to make those decisions. Another one would be the seventh lie, would be in order to feel safe in the world, I must avoid painful feelings and situations by thinking and planning for a future filled with unlimited possibilities and fun. The eighth one would be in order to, uh, to remain in control in a hostile world and safe, I must present and assert strength and power over the environment and others to mask vulnerability and weakness. And then the last one would be to be loved and keep maintain a sense of internal and external peace I must avoid conflict and merge with the agenda of others. So which of those nine do you, did it's, you kind of go? Either the first oh. or the second. So if you would give me the first two again, I will pick between the first two because it's one of the first two. To be loved and good, virtuous, I must perfect myself, others, and the world, and never make mistakes. Okay. So that in Enneagram speak, we would call them perfectionists. Mm-hmm. Okay. The second one would be to be loved and appreciated. I must meet the needs of others. Uh, I must um, disavow or disown my own needs. But I, you know, I've, you know, I've just got to bring a casserole to everybody who's, you know, experienced so some recent uh, trauma. I resonate with all of them. Of course I do, because I'm yes. human. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I, I would say the the word perfect throws off number one from feeling like it can't be the answer, because I don't actually uh, uh, like subscribe to the perfect part of it, but the rest of it totally resonates. Uh, and I definitely take care of or am interested in my own needs, but sometimes my needs include serving and taking care of others. So there's something about each of those first two that are they, they totally resonate, but not in exactly how they are written. And that's not how this game works. I can't change the words, can I? No. Um, you, you can a little bit, but and remember, I'm giving you one sentence descriptions of lies that I've spent chapters writing about each of them. Yeah. You know? So yeah. let, me, let me just read you another one and then tell you why I think it's important. Um, People, I'm going to say it again, only value others for their accomplishments, their achievements, not for who they are inside. Um, And it's really, let me add this to it. And it's not okay to really have my own feelings and identity. I'm really trying to, uh, my my identity is all wrapped up in what I do. Yeah, that now that. That one definitely resonates for sure. Okay. Because that, that's the part of the first one, but doesn't have the perfect part of it. I, yeah. I mean, for sure. Right. So, so that's the Enneagram three. No. Okay. Yes. And um, the three and the one often get confused. That's why number one was probably sort of got your attention, right? The Enneagram one believes that, 
they must perfect themselves, others in the world, in order to be loved, right? Um, and uh, But threes, uh, the achievers, are very concerned with doing things well, because when you don't do things well, what don't you get? Achievement and accomplishments, right? Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, so you, it's interesting some phrases you used. Um, the idea of somebody sitting down to ask themselves what setting set time aside to ask themselves, what do I need to do to engineer the best year of my life? Right. Yeah. I can just tell you another friend of mine who does that, who is the ultimate three, which is my friend, Mike Hyatt. (laughs) Okay. That you might as well have just been Mike Hyatt when you said it. Now I'm not saying you are a three, but I'm, what I'm saying is, pay attention when I say yeah. that, right? Um, when, when you said, you actually used the phrase, uh, you used the word achievement over, you used the word achievement about five times at one point in the conversation. Mm. Um, and that you were over-identified, you over-identified yourself with your accomplishments at Disney. And then at a certain point, you got to the top and you're like, this is it. Like, this didn't work out. This, this didn't deliver, which is a very common thing to happen to threes. They, they, they sort of hit a moment where they're like, I've, you know, I've hit the top. Mm-hmm. My accomplishment achievements actually don't make me feel any more loved than I did when I started. Like, like yeah. there's no relationship. Yeah. And then um, when your child, your seven-year-old asked you, what are you afraid of? And you said, miss potential. That has a very three-ish quality of an answer. Yeah. Um, that I didn't achieve enough. That I didn't accomplish enough. That I didn't realize my 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 gifts enough. Um, because threes tend to confuse success and achievement with love. In other words, there's a correlation. The more the more I achieve, the more loved I am. That's why it's such a terrible thing for a three at 47 to be declared redundant at their company. And they realize what you wait a minute. I'm the president. You're supposed to love me more than anybody else. In the, and they, and they go, nah, you're replaceable. Yeah. That's a, that that's devastating to a three. So here's what I would say. You don't sound nine to me at all. Doesn't mean you're not. Okay. But you don't sound nine to me at all. Agreed. You you have the aggression of an eight, like you have some of that energy, right? Which is very intense. Uh, you have a larger than life presence, but your history tells me that you were more um, concerned with image than an eight ever would be. Mm. Eights don't eights could care less about their image. You, you know what I mean? Like they just like you know whatever. Threes, twos, threes, and fours uh, tend to be the most image conscious numbers on the enneagram. And, um, you know, you're in an ent- entertainment industry. Uh, oh, where, no, I've where... got vanity and ego running in these Stop. bones. So oh. the vice of the three, <laughs> we talk about vice and virtue in the Enneagram. Yes. The, the three's vice is vanity. And the antidote is authenticity. So I like if I that. were... If, if I were like doing an Enneagram typing system, you know, sort of uh, typing process with you right now, the way I would answer you at the end of this conversation, which this is, uh, I would say I would go and read a couple of Enneagram books and really focus on that three 
because of those three that you just we just went through, you sounded far more three to me than eight or nine. Mm-hmm. And since those are three results that you've come up with, and, and the fact that your wife, she thinks you're an eight, right? Uh-huh. Go and look. Which I will this. tell you this. I, I will tell you what's interesting is because she's a three, and she knows how her three creates the, the drive that this woman has is unicorn-like. I mean, she is a burning ball of motivation in the morning. And I, because I have been more extrinsically motivated and just, I don't have the, I I am achievement oriented, but my drive shows up differently. I think she suspects that my ability to have three in me because of my wiring for how I achieve being different, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe is part of why she thinks the way she does. doesn't mean that she's right either, by the way, but I understand where she comes from. Now, I'm not saying that eights can't be vulnerable, but most eights confuse vulnerability with weakness. Mm. And you have a more feeling orientation, at least in this conversation, than I would often get with eights. I'm not saying you're not an eight. Just go back, read three eights and nines in a couple of books, and particularly pay attention to three. Yeah, because you What's have a lot of those qualities. One thing that's interesting, I know we can't talk for the rest of time. I'd, I'd be happy to, by the way. But uh, the last question of your test, the question, did you answer this test honestly? I answered, not true. And I answered it that way because I, one, was just fascinated by the question, but also because I think there's a part of me that is wired to try and get the test right. <laughs> and, right. and, and so it, when I'm having to be honest about whether or not I was honest, I can acknowledge that there may in fact have been some questions that I answered the way I think you're supposed to answer to get the right answer, which makes them not honest answers. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, and that's a more, that would probably be more of a three pitfall than an eight pitfall. Right, mm, okay. So, we've had, in my mind, this has been one of the most fun conversations I've had in a long time. Um, Me too. Because uh, the Enneagram talks about nine lies, nine assumptions that need to be interrogated. You've identified 20 others. And our goal is the same, which is to uh, surface and disidentify from the lies that uh, create self-limiting, self-defeating behaviors and ways of moving through the world. And, um, you know, I think that's, uh, that's a really cool, I'm glad that you and I are in the same business. Me too. What a rad conversation this has been. Unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really. And I want to, so I want to commend to everybody Dave's book. Yes. Because um, I will be honest, I have not had opportunity to read it yet, but I've, you know, done a, a read a praises of it. So I, I, you know, I had a pretty good idea of what it was and you described it beautifully. Get out of your own way. 
a skeptic, a skeptic's guide to growth and fulfillment. Anthony, we got a giveaway on that, don't we? Yes. Yeah. So uh, if you would go to the Instagram post about this podcast, it'll be on Ian's Instagram, Ian Morgan Cron and the typology podcast. And if you like that, uh, we will put your name in a hat and we'll do a couple of drawings for a few of Dave's books. Get out of your own way, a skeptic's guide to growth and fulfillment. Where's Get out feelings? of your own way, a skeptic's guide to growth and fulfillment, Dave Hollis. Dave, this is a great conversation and uh, I, I, I hope I get to know you better. Uh, I haven't met Rachel. I hope I get a chance to, to meet her. And um, uh, we always end the show with the, the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself everybody else is already taken.